Midwest Crime Files is a true crimes podcast. In it, we discuss adult themes and go over the details of heinous crimes and how they were committed. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to the Midwest Crime Files. I'm your host, Gina. And I'm Chris. We're here to tell you the stories of small towns and the heinous crimes that changed them forever. Today's story brings us to Indiana. And this story is very disturbing for a lot of reasons. First and foremost, when somebody commits a heinous crime such as murder, we expect our criminal justice system to protect us from these individuals, hold these people accountable, and protect society from any further wrongdoing. That doesn't always happen, though. And in this case, it had horrible consequences. There was a gross miscarriage of justice in this case. And the results were nothing short of horrific. This is the story of the Indiana Cannibal. Joseph Oberhansley was born March 29th, 1981 to Stephen and his mother, Brenda. He also had a half-brother, Justin, who was about six years older, and a younger sister, Alicia. Now, I imagine Joseph probably looked up a lot to Justin. Um, This was his big brother. You know, six years older is significant enough where I'm sure that he felt like that's who I want to grow up and be like. Right. Joseph's family described him as a loving, nonviolent person, but he suffered a lot in 1997. So during this year, he lost his brother, Justin, to suicide. And then shortly thereafter, his father died. And it's interesting because when I'm researching, there's a lot of um, insinuation that Stephen Oberhansley's death was very suspicious. Um, one source even said that there were violent circumstances. The Desert News called it a suspicious death and a suspicious overdose. So it's really unclear exactly what happened, but it certainly seems like it was a little sketchy situation. Right. And as a result, Joseph suffered greatly. His mental status seemed to deteriorate. He seemed to be very depressed. And at this time, he's living in Utah. Um, He met a young woman sometime during the year of 1997 named Sabrina Elder. And Sabrina's grandfather instantly did not like Joseph. Um, And I'll have you, Chris, read the quote from Sabrina's grandfather. Uh, Quote, I tried to run him out of the yard the first time I saw him. End quote. And that's from Alfred, who was Sabrina's grandfather. But despite his objections, Sabrina and Joseph began dating. And in early 1998, Sabrina is pregnant. Both Sabrina and Joseph are 17 years old They're very, very young, um, but it's certainly not unheard of for 17-year-olds to become parents. Right. But their relationship didn't seem to last. And before their son was born, 
They actually were split up, and Joseph was seeing another girl that was his considered his girlfriend. And according to her, he frequently complained because Sabrina was living with Joseph's grandmother. He felt like this baby was maybe not his, and he even made a comment to his new girlfriend about wanting to kill Sabrina. On December 4th, 1998, Sabrina gave birth to a boy whom she named Joseph, presumably after the father of the child. She was continuing to live with Joseph's grandmother and Joseph's mother, Brenda, and his sister, Alicia, were really rather gathered around Sabrina, trying to help her with this newborn baby that she had. Sabrina was only 17 and she was a new mother without the support of the baby's father. Just five days after she gave birth, Sabrina's life would end very violently. On December 9th, 1998, Joseph went to his grandmother Norma's home in Utah where his grandmother, mother, sister, and his ex-girlfriend Sabrina, along with their newborn son, were gathered in the living room. The family member said that he paced in the hallway for a few minutes and then he suddenly entered the living room and just started shooting. According to his mother, Brenda, she was holding the infant and she rushed to put the baby down in a cradle or a playpen or something like that um, to protect the baby. And at that time, his younger sister, Alicia, grabbed the baby and ran and hid with the baby in safety. But it was too late. Joseph had shot his mother in the back and he had shot Sabrina Elder in the head five times. Sabrina died at 17 years old on December 9th, 1998. His mother Brenda survived, but all of this turned even more tragic when Joseph turned the gun on himself in an attempt to commit suicide. And from all my research, he put the gun under his chin. He too, however, survived. Sabrina's family, of course, is distraught. They want justice. Um, Norma and Alicia and the baby were unharmed, but they, along with Joseph's mother, Brenda, would have to obviously give testimony as to what happened against Joseph. Joseph was in the hospital for about a month and a half, and at that point in January of 99, he was arrested. He was charged with the murder, and his bail was set at $1 million. His defense attorney asked the judge to reduce it to $5,000. And his defense attorney says, quote, he has a place to go. He has people who support him, end quote. And it's true, he did. Despite the fact that he had done this to his mother and at his grandmother's home and she very easily could have been hurt or killed, his grandmother Norma and his mother Brenda still supported Joseph. And they paid, his grandparents actually paid for his defense lawyer. And what they said was they felt like he would not have done this had he not suffered his trauma with his losing his brother and his father. The judge in the case ruled that it was 
okay for a material witness to finance the defense. And I'll have you read the quote from the judge. Uh, quote, uh, there's nothing that strikes me as being inappropriate about having a material witness finance the defense, end quote. So I don't know the legalities of it all, especially in 1999, but I find it really hard to imagine that the key witnesses in the trial are financing the defense. It seems like a very it's too, much it's a conflict like of a interest. Conflict, yeah, very conflict of interest for that. Um, it just doesn't seem appropriate to me. So despite the fact that the judge allows his family to both testify against him and finance his defense, he doesn't reduce the bond, at least not at this particular time. And what the judge says, I think, is just spot on. He says, quote, this is a heinous murder. If I were a citizen, I would be concerned about the freedom of the alleged perpetrator, end quote. And I think that's completely correct. Like, how inappropriate for somebody that just gunned down his family to allow him to go on a $5,000 bond. Right. But by June of 1999, Joseph was actually released without any bail. He was released to the care of his family and on home confinement pending his trial. Although his family, including his mother, his sister, and his grandmother, testified at pretrial hearings, the jury would never hear this case. In January of 2000, Joseph Oberhansley pled guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter for killing Sabrina and attempted murder for shooting his mother. Both are second-degree felonies. Prosecutor Paul Parker said that he didn't think he could get a conviction for first-degree murder because of Joseph's severe emotional distress. It's just kind of crazy to me. Like, he gunned down a family. He killed a 17-year-old girl who had just given birth to his child, and it's manslaughter and attempted murder and basically a slap on the wrist. His defense attorney said, quote, this was not an intentional act. All of the stressors involved in Joseph's life at the time led up to this. It is likely that outside of those factors, this never would have happened, end quote. Now, this is the next thing that the defense attorney says is something that I believe is funny as hell. And, like, this was a reason to get him on the lesser, like, to make him plead to the lesser charge. That, uh, quote, the injury he sustained actually has had a beneficial effect because of the, por the portion of the brain that was injured, end quote. So basically what the defense attorney is saying is, yeah, he shot himself, but when he did, he shot the part that had all the issues going on. Yes, you know, shot so, the evil right out of his brain. So shot, yeah, shot the evil right out of his brain. You know, because brains aren't you know elastic and plastic and can't be molded and you know recover things. But yeah, let's let's just cook, let's just give him a lesser uh, charge because oh, he shot that part of himself out of himself. Well, and you know there are cases where somebody has a head injury, not necessarily from an attempted suicide, but you know, even a car wreck or something, and there's changes in their personalities. Like, that does happen, but to say just 
you know, just a little bit over a year after his injury that this injury, quote, mellowed him out, end quote. I just think it's ridiculous. Right. I mean, that's just, like, if we're going to go with that kind of defense, that's the same as when uh, they used to treat uh, paranoia and schizophrenia with, uh, oh, what, what was it called, babe? A lobotomy? Yeah, a lobotomy. Because, oh, we... We knocked that point. Yeah, you know, essentially, you know, made the person brain dead, you know. But that wasn't the case with him. He still had memories of everything that was going on. Like, he didn't forget any of this stuff. It, it didn't really change his personality. What they're saying is that, oh, he just, you know, shot part of his prefrontal cortex off. And that one part that was the part that made him evil. Well, and I'm sorry, but to say that this never would have happened without stress, don't get me wrong. I work as a hospice nurse. I see complicated grief every single day, and it's a very real thing. And do I think he was probably suicidal? Yeah, I absolutely do. And his big brother just committed suicide like a year earlier. So, you know, I I feel like he probably was suicidal, but... I don't buy that this compound stress was enough to justify him killing someone. Right. That's that's where I have a problem. You know, it's fine to say he had severe emotional distress, but this was a year and a half almost after his brother's suicide and his father's death. And he made comments to his, at the time, girlfriend that he wanted to kill Sabrina. He didn't think this baby was his. He resented the fact that she was living with his family. I honestly don't think this has anything to do with grief. I think this had everything to do with, he's 17, he doesn't want this responsibility, and for whatever reason, he's pissed off at this girl, and that was that. Right. You know, I think he was probably upset with his family, too. That's why he shot them, too. Um, in March of 2000, Joseph was sentenced to 15 years in prison for the manslaughter charge and 15 years for the attempted murder charge. The family of Sabrina Elder asked that these sentences run consecutively to keep him in prison for 30 years. But the judge ruled that they would run concurrently. The sentencing was a tough blow to the family, and Sabrina's grandfather said, quote, he's going to get out in five to seven years and do it again, end quote. At the sentencing hearing, Joseph did say that he regretted his actions, and I'll let you read his quote. Uh, Joseph uh, stated, quote, I'd give my life for hers. I will take responsibility for my acts. Not only today, but every day until I die. End quote. So, it seems like, all in all, everybody kind of blew this up to this is a young kid who made a horrible mistake. And, you know, yeah, it was wrong, but he's 17 and he went through a whole lot of emotional stuff. Plus, he shot himself. But he's I don't mellowed believe, out now. I don't believe that there was any justice served, though. No, like, and neither I'm, did Sabrina's family. Well, and that's the thing. Like, with the grandfather, you know, and the family Satan, that they wanted it done consecutively and not concurrently. You know, I don't get how, ever, how two different charges, if like, oh, yeah, we're just going to get 15 years for this one and 15 years for this one, but we're just going to combine them, and you're just going to run it all, like, you just get 15 total. Like, it's an interesting part of our justice system in the U.S. Right. And from what, like, this being our ninth episode now, mm-hmm. like, I've noticed that our justice system sucks. 
<laughs> sometimes when it comes to this kind of thing. There's definitely some room for improvement. Right. That is for sure. And when, you know, if you thought that part of the story is disturbing, we're just getting started. Right. I mean, the things that he does that we're going to tell you about in the next portion, it, it's just, it's unbelievable. Un- unfortunately, Sabrina's grandfather, like... He wasn't he, wrong. He wasn't wrong. Uh, in July of 2012, 12 years after he started his sentence in Utah, the parole board met and they wanted to determine if Joseph should be granted a second chance at freedom. Believe it or not, his mother, Brenda, advocated for his release despite the fact that she was one of the victims. Once again, this is one of those cases where... I don't get how... Okay, I understand family. I, I love my kid. And we... Gina and I have had this discussion while she was writing this case. That, yes, I would love I would love my kids to death. But, damn it, you shoot me in the back, I'll love you from a distance. Exactly. I'll like, love I'm you not, while you're in prison. Like, you're going to serve your sentence, whatever it may be. And then, if you get out, then maybe we'll talk. If I'm still not pissed off at you for shooting me in the back. Right. And she told Wave 3 News that quote, I think drugs had a lot to do with it. End quote. Sabrina's family advocated for her justice and they asked that Joseph Oberhansley serve his entire 15 year sentence. Joseph claimed the bullet that he put in his own head had mellowed him out and argued that he was a changed man. And believe it or not, he was granted parole. Not only was he granted parole, but he was permitted to leave the state of Utah. He was given special permission under an interstate parole program to move to southern Indiana, where Brenda, his mother, was now living. And within a year of getting out of prison, Joseph would find himself in trouble again. And this is where the justice system has failed on numerous occasions with just this one case. The police were called in March of 2013 for a fight at an apartment above a bar. When they get there, this woman is hysterical and she says that there's a man killing her boyfriend. They go into the bathroom and they find Joseph Oberhansley completely in the nude, choking a barely conscious man. Police actually had to tase Joseph, not once, but twice to get him off this man. So when they start digging in and finding out what is going on, apparently Joseph went home with this woman from the bar, was having sex with her when her boyfriend came home and started beating him in the head with a baseball bat. Joseph did have a wound to the back of his head, lends some truth to this claim. Um, He also said that he was robbed by the couple, and there was apparently evidence to support that as well. Regardless, they took him to Clark County Jail, and they charged him with aggravated battery, strangulation, and resisting law enforcement. Which should have revoked his parole. 
Yes, it should. And in all of my research, it seems like there's some conflicting information. The Indiana parole officer that was assigned to monitor Joseph claims that this was reported back to the Utah Parole Board. The Utah Parole Board says we were never notified of this. So, you know, within a year of getting out of jail on a manslaughter and attempted murder charge, he is choking someone nearly to death and had to be tased twice to get him off and resisting arrest from police. It's just crazy to me that he did not go back to prison, but he didn't. In fact, his grandfather bails him out of county jail. Thousand dollars. Somehow he fell through the cracks and Joseph was being supervised by this parole officer, like I said, in Indiana, that was supposed to be communicating with the Utah Parole Board. But not only that infraction, but in May of 2013, he was also charged with a speeding infraction that should have been reported. And the Utah Parole Board, again, says they were never notified. The Indiana Parole says, yes, you were. But in the spring of 2014, Joseph was introduced to a pretty woman in her 40s with a big heart named Tammy Jo Blanton. The two began to date, and according to Tammy's family, she was trying to help Joseph. She knew at least a little bit about his past. She knew that he had been in prison. Um, Don't really know if she if he if she knew what he was actually in prison for, though. Correct. Like the whole shebang. Yeah. Chances are she probably didn't know everything, at least not at first. Um, Friends of Tammy were instantly concerned when they met Joseph, and one of her friends actually told a news outlet in 2019 that the first time she met him, she got, quote, a terrible gut feeling, end quote. She went on to say that Tammy was a very independent person, but within weeks of starting to date Joseph, there were just red flags popping up. Um, They described Joseph as very controlling. They claimed that he tried to isolate Tammy, that he had a horrible temper. So apparently this gunshot that mellowed him out didn't mellow him out quite as much as he claimed. It quite possibly did the opposite. On July 21st of 2014, Joseph led police on a slow-speed chase that started in Jeffersonville, Indiana, which is southern Indiana where he was living, and ended in Kentucky. He was charged on the 23rd with criminal recklessness and resisting arrest. Now, that's three different incidences. One for speeding, two for, like, two of them were resisting arrest, uh, you know, uh, evading police, and then you had the strangulation. Like, there's so many things that I don't ha- I don't know how he wasn't in jail on Indiana's terms. Right. At this point. Like, forget even being a, a parolee. Like, how are you not in prison with the charges that you had already? 
you something. Know, you know, or so, yeah, anything. And mind you, this is 2014. He just got out on parole in 2012. Right. We're not talking about a long period of time where he was well-behaved and well-mannered. Well, like, and it's, and it's, he just instantly went back to being a shit. Yeah, and once again, it's 2014. It's not like this is like in the 80s or 70s where communication was done through, you know, phones, faxes, and like snail mail. Right. Like, this is like primetime internet. Like, we've got... AOL, like, hell, we have more Facebook Messenger. Like, we've got ways to communicate that are instantaneous. And for some reason, this, all three of these different instances never made it to Utah. Right. Well, and not to mention the fact that it was interstate. It's not even Indiana at this point. It's Indiana and Kentucky. Like, how do you rack up charges in multiple states while you're on parole and it never get back? Well, and like, and like, we, like, how do you not go to jail, even for a year or two, for reckless and endang- like the aiding or the uh, evading? And- it's insane. So, in early September of 2014, Tammy Joe and Joseph's relationship started to really deteriorate. So Joe was being very controlling, possessive, and jealous. Tammy was losing her patience with him. But she had a really kind heart and her family really felt like she just wanted to help him and tried to make him better. And, you know, this happens all the time. Women think that they're going to change a man. And I think that's what she was hoping for, that she could help him calm down. So at some point in time, Tammy and Joseph go to a company picnic. And afterwards, they go back to Tammy's house and Joseph apparently raped her. And we know this because she told friends and family members about it. But she declined to press charges because she didn't want him to go back to prison. However, she was done. Relationship over. She changed the locks on her home. She threw all of Joseph's stuff out. And she ended the relationship. It's it's just crazy to me. You know, I understand being a kind person and wanting to give people a second chance, but with everything that he had done, and this just got another thing that just kind of got slid under the rug. On the morning of September 11th, 2014, at 3 a.m., police received a 911 call from Tammy's home. Tammy claimed Joseph was trying to break in and she wanted him to leave. So police come and they find Joseph and he's there and he's outside the home and very clearly trying to get in the house. And they ask him to leave and he agrees. And they leave. This is now the fourth run-in with police in less than a couple years that this man has had that were aggravated and aggressive crimes... And nothing was done. Like, I don't understand why they didn't arrest like, him. Like, did the... I want, I want to know, did the police in this hometown, did they know his past? Did they know that he, like, that he was on parole and for what he was on parole for? Like, there has to be some kind of talk between Utah parole and the town that he's living in that, like, hey, this is a dangerous man. You know, he was a a danger like an aggressive but criminal. But he killed the dangerous part of his brain with the gunshot, remember? Right. It it's insane to me. And in this, you know, 2014 is 
what, seven years ago? Yep. I mean, we're not talking, not even, like six and a half. We're not even talking about a long time ago. And the whole thing is crazy. Like, what we know about domestic violence and what we know about he's trying to break into her house. She's calling 911 because she's scared. I can't figure out why they didn't arrest him. I don't know if Tammy told them not to or what the situation is, but I would find that hard to believe because reportedly the night before she had actually stayed with a friend because she was scared of Joseph. So it's just insane to me and not arresting him at 3 a.m. would prove to be a fatal mistake. Did did Tammy say something to the police? Like, if you can just get him to leave. Right. You know, that'll be enough. And that's what I don't know. Like, that's one of those things that we'll never know. It just seems crazy to me that somehow he still slid on another infraction. Right. So, allegedly, Joseph left and he went back to his mother's house and he was complaining to his mother that Tammy changed the locks and how the police always seem to take the woman's side in such cases. And soon after, he left his mother's house again. At this point in time, I don't know this lady, and perhaps she has very good intentions and really had no idea what he was doing, but I wonder what her knowledge of his mental state was when he left the house again. Um, Later that morning, Tammy did not show up for work. This was very unusual for her. Um, She was a very punctual person and if she wasn't going to be at work she always would call so friends and co-workers started to call her and one of the co-workers would later say that when she called Joseph answered Tammy's phone but this person knew that Joseph and Tammy were no longer together and that Tammy was afraid of him so they called the Jeffersonville Police Department and they asked them if they could go by Tammy's house and do a wellness check A different set of officers were now on duty, and they arrived at Tammy's house about 10 a.m. on September 11th, 2014. A man answered the door and identified himself as Joe. Um, The officers, not knowing there even was a call at 3 a.m., were still concerned because they noticed there were signs of forced entry to the back door, and that Joe who would later be identified as Joseph Oberhansley, had blood on his hands and cuts on his knuckles. So they were really suspicious. They insisted they're coming in the house. Inside the home, they found a lot of blood. Police described this crime scene as worse than a horror movie. They noted that the bathroom door appeared to have been kicked in And inside the bathroom, they found a bloody tent in the bathtub. And when they lifted the tent, they found Tammy. Tammy was found deceased in her home around 10 a.m. on the morning of September 11th, 2014. Just seven hours after she called the cops for him trying to break into her home. This crime was so beyond brutal. The injuries to Tammy's body were just horrendous. She had large, deep wounds to her head, her face, her chest, and her neck. Her neck had been slashed, and the front portion of her skull had been crushed. 
There were large pieces of her skull that had been cut out with a saw and parts of her brain were missing. A part of her skull and some brain tissue was found in the bathtub and there were large lacerations on her chest that were so big that you could actually see into her chest cavity and see her internal organs. And when the investigators looked, they noticed that her heart was missing and so was some of her lung tissue. In the kitchen, investigators found some of Tammy's missing body parts. They found a portion of her skull bone on a plate that also had blood that would later be identified as Tammy's. Additionally, they found a skillet on the stove and a pair of kitchen tongs containing her blood. This evidence led authorities to believe that someone had eaten parts of Tammy's missing brain, heart, and lungs. Joseph Oberhansley was taken into police custody. Oberhansley initially denied knowing what happened to Tammy, but eventually he confessed. He told authorities that he came back later that morning, had enough sense to park away from Tammy's house to avoid detection so that she wouldn't know he was there. He broke into the home and then he broke down the bathroom door where Tammy was hiding from him. He admitted that he stabbed her to death and then he used a jigsaw to cut open her skull. Joseph confirmed investigator suspicions and told them that he ate part of Tammy's brain. First, he ate it raw and then he cooked another portion in the skillet and consumed it. He also confessed to killing her and eating her heart and a portion of her lungs. A knife was found in Joseph's pocket that contained Tammy's blood and hair. Joseph Oberhansley was officially charged with the murder of Tammy Jo Blanton on September 16, 2014 and was held without bond. Tammy Jo was 46 years old and was a kind loving person who was forever taken from her family and friends. They celebrated her life with a memorial service on September 17, 2014. That's a sobering part of this story because as much as this criminal justice system has failed to protect society, Tammy's murder could so have been prevented. But the story doesn't even stop here. In 2017, Oberhansley was found unfit to stand trial. He was sent to Logan Sports State Hospital, where three state psychiatrists reported that he was not competent. He was treated there for more than a year, and in 2018, they determined that he was now fit to stand trial. However, his defense attorneys continued to profess that mental illness was debilitating and was the cause of his actions. They urged him to claim not guilty due to insanity. But Joseph Oberhansley decided he was not going to plea not guilty due to insanity. And he felt, quote, using this defense would admit guilt and is unlikely to work, end quote. 
someone that has put enough thought into his defense to say that by saying this, I'm admitting I'm guilty and I don't think I'll get away with it is not insane. In my opinion, like you obviously have thought enough about your own defense to know what you feel like is going to get you off and what's not. In exchange for withdrawing the insanity plea, the prosecution agreed to take the death penalty off the table. I don't know how I feel about the death penalty, but if there was ever someone that I felt deserved it, it's Joseph Oberhansley. Right. I mean, this man, since he was 17 years old, cannot be trusted in society, clearly. Right. Um, The prosecution felt like because of the psychiatric evidence and the fact that he was deemed unfit to stand trial um, at one point in time, they felt like even if they got the death penalty, it would probably not be upheld. And they're probably right. On appeal, it probably would have been overturned anyway. So, in all reality, was it the right decision? Probably. But it makes me sick that... Somebody like this is allowed to live another day. Right. The Oberhansley murder trial began in 2019, and on the fourth day of testimony, a friend of Tammy's was providing testimony regarding the abuse Tammy suffered during the relationship. Her friend explained that Tammy didn't call the police on Joseph because she didn't want him to go back to prison. And she also mentioned that Joseph was a drug user. These statements were considered improper because Oberhansley's criminal record was not allowed to be presented as evidence because it would lead to a biased jury. I, I understand not wanting to, to prejudice the jury, but I think his criminal history is pretty damn relevant. Well, and like I just looked it up. Um... It says, generally, prosecutors can't use evidence of prior convictions to prove a defendant's guilt or tendency to commit crimes, but they can sometimes use them to question the truthfulness or credibility of the defendant's testimony. And that's from taken from uh, nolo.com. It's a legal encyclopedia. Um, so basically, you're right. They don't... I think we should take into account his past, but they can't use that as precedent because it's going to sway the results of the jury in this case. Right. You know? Which, I mean, a lot of times they allow that information in at sentencing, but not during the prosecution portion. So, at this point, the judge has no choice, and he declares it a mistrial. So, six years after Tammy's murder on September 11th, 2020... The second trial of Joseph Oberhansley begins. His um, defense attorneys had attempted again to get him deemed incompetent for trial, but they failed to do so. The trial was, however, switched to Allen County, Indiana, to mitigate the enormous media coverage in southern Indiana. Opening statements included the prosecution comparing the death to a movie scene from a horror movie and the defense asked the jury to look at the case from all sides. I wasn't obviously in the room when this occurred and I don't know exactly what evidence they were trying to present but in my eyes like what how what do you mean you want me to see it from all sides? He broke into her house admittedly 
killed her horrendously and ate her organs. I, I don't know. I just don't understand what the defense could possibly mean by look at the case from all sides. Right. A friend and co-worker of Tammy's testified during the first day of the trial that um, Joseph had answered Tammy's phone that morning. Jurors heard about the 911 calls from her home earlier that morning, and they were shown very graphic and disturbing images of her body. Over the next few days, evidence of cannibalism was presented in addition to Oberhansley's confession. DNA evidence on the dishes, cookware, knife, and saw were confirmed to be Tammy's DNA. Tammy's DNA was also found on Joseph's hands. Nothing like getting caught literally red-handed. Right. Joseph's DNA was found inside of Tammy's vagina, but there were no signs of vaginal trauma. He was also being charged for rape and abuse of a corpse. Tammy's friends testified about the rape and sexual abuse that she told them about. The evidence included the following text messages from Tammy to Joseph. Quote, you can choose to be in denial about what happened Saturday into Sunday. I won't be in denial. No one, and I mean no one, gets to terrify me like you did Sunday. I will never forget it as long as I live. End quote. Quote, I don't want to involve the police, but if you leave me no choice, that is what I'll have to do. End quote. And finally, quote, at the end of the day, I'm taking my life back. I worked too hard to get here. No one will take me down. End quote. And those were the text messages that Tammy sent to Joseph leading up to her murder. The defense wanted you to see it from all sides. They called one witness and one witness only. And it was Joseph Oberhansley. He testified that he was coerced by police to give his confession and that he was not responsible for Tammy's death. He explained that he had a brain injury. He admitted to returning to Tammy's house around 4 a.m., but claimed that he saw two black men at the home. The jury did not buy this story. And who would? I mean... You're literally caught red-handed, like you said. You've literally got her blood on your hands. You're there in the house with her dead body when police get there. Like, what? I'm surprised they didn't exhume his stomach. Or pump his stomach. Once they found, like, the cooking utensils and stuff like that. It, it's insane. It's insane that he actually, somewhere in his brain, thought that well, and the, the defense, jury's going to believe that two black guys were there. And, like, what a white guy thing to say. Right. <laughs> Let's blame it on some black men. And, like, the defense was okay with this, too. Like, they th- like that was the smoking gun that they were going to use. That, oh, he wasn't, he wasn't guilty of this. It's bunch of morons. crazy. The jury didn't buy it. And after five days of testimony... They found Joseph Oberhansley guilty of first-degree murder and burglary. They found him not guilty of rape. Joseph Oberhansley was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. I mean, I... Finally! I mean, I'm glad he finally got life, but, like, it only took someone else dying. It's... You know? 
it's unfathomable that this, I mean, this was so preventable. Had he gotten the sentence he should have gotten for killing Sabrina, this wouldn't have happened. I mean, Sabrina's grandfather was spot on. He yeah. got out and it did it, it again. It, it wasn't five to seven. Years. It was 12 years, but I yeah. mean, yeah. Got out in 12 years and killed within two. Yeah, I mean, and it was just such a, a miscarriage of justice. And, well, not a miscarriage of justice. Um, well, it was. I mean... Miscarriage means Sabrina, that the wrong person was, like, I'm thinking... Well, not necessarily, but, I mean, Sabrina didn't get the justice she deserved. No, not at the all. The justice system failed her. The justice system failed her family. The justice system failed to protect Tammy Joe Blanton. And to be completely honest, I think if I was a family member of Tammy Jo Blanton, I'd be looking to see what can be done. Because in my opinion, the whole legal system is responsible for her death. Like, they failed to monitor him. Yeah, they did. Clearly failed to monitor him. The, you know, and I don't know, is that on Indiana or is that on Utah? Can't honestly, tell you. Honestly, honestly, I don't care. Honestly, it should be on both of them. It's an interstate parole program they should have been communicating right like, i mean and i are... wonder if there was any internal like um review done on this case with the indiana St uh, police department and the utah parole board as to why the hell it happened like why this was allowed to slip through the cracks cracks so much that it cost somebody else their life I mean, he should have been sent back to prison for the 2013 assault or the 2014 police chase, or he could have been arrested at 3 a.m. And I'm sure the officers that were there that morning at 3 a.m. have got to feel a sense of guilt. Oh, most definitely. I mean, if you guys let him walk away and he came back less than an hour later, you know, I'm surprised that once again, what was the, what kind of information did the or the Indiana police know at that point about this man? What and why wasn't there some kind of, uh, like protection? You something. know, like most of the time, whenever there's an aggressive, like an aggressive ex or something like that, the police department will put a marked car out in front of the yard. Something. You know, something to let them know that hey, you know, yeah, we're still here. We're you know. To be protected. But even then, what says that if they would have did that, would that have prevented everything? Probably not. He probably would have came back at a later date and did the shit anyway. Because you guys don't have the balls or, like, the knowledge of what's going on to figure out that this man needed to be in jail for longer than he was. And you guys failed on four different occasions to make sure that he would go back to jail. Right. Well, and then I wonder, too, like... I found no statements from his family. None. Right. After his arrest from Tammy Joe's murder. And I just wonder, like, how are they feeling about this? Do they feel like they Do can't believe we supported him and, and helped him so much and brought him here and now this happened and we were wrong? Or do they still feel like... It's a mental it's thing. A vic he's a victim. He's a victim of trauma. He's a victim of self-inflicted brain damage. Like, what is the case? And, like, I totally get that if he had been given the death penalty, it would have been most likely overturned. a successful appeal and overturned. Right. 
because of his brain damage and his mental history. But, God, if there was ever anybody that needed the death penalty. Yeah. If there was anybody that needed to be actually to be taken off the streets. Right. Period. And I don't even know how I feel about the death penalty personally, but if I was ever going to be for it, it would be for Joseph Oberhansley. Right. Like, he is well, clearly someone that does not need to be in society. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, he has shown, like like he's, we said on multiple occasions, that he is a violent criminal. You know, and that he can't be trusted in society. Not the, not not how he was. You know, I don't know what kind if they were even giving him any kind of treatment while he was actually in prison for uh killing Sabrina. Right. You know, like were are were they just kind of like, "Uh, oh, whatever." You know, and that's something that needs to be looked at too in our prison system. You know, how are mentally um challenged uh people handled in the prison system? Are, you know, are they actually getting treatment that they need to kind of help if he was, you know, a victim of his brother and uh, father's deaths, what kind of treatment, you know, what kind of therapy would he need to help get him past that? Yeah. You know? All in all, it was a huge miscarriage of justice, though. Flat out, somebody fucked up and Tammy paid the price for it. And she didn't have to. And Her death did. was preventable. Right. On multiple, multiple occasions. If you want more information about this case in a list of our references, and it's a pretty darn long list, um, please visit us at www.themidwestcrimefiles.com. And we will be back next week with a brand new story. Yep. If you guys have any questions, comments, smart remarks, you know, just reach out to us. We're on all the social medias, uh, Facebook, Twitter. Just if you have any questions, let us know. If you have any stories that you want to hear, let us know. I know I think Gina's got a couple in the pipeline uh, from listeners and uh, readers already that are that she's working on. But, yeah, I mean, we love doing this for you guys. We just need more input from you guys. Thanks. Thanks. Have a good night.